Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be examining the God in time. With me is my old friend and former college roommate from my undergraduate days at the University of Wisconsin, James P. Driscoll, who is one of the foremost critics of Renaissance literature from a Jungian perspective. He is the author of Identity in Shakespearean Drama, as well as The Unfolding God of Jung and Milton. In addition, he has recently published Shakespeare and Jung, The God in Time. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. It's good to be here again. Jeffrey. You told me an interesting story with regard to the uh, origination of your book, uh, Shakespeare and Jung, The God and Time. It's almost uh, reminiscent of some of Jung's own experiences delving into uh, the depth of his mind as, as he records in his Red Book. I had thought about writing a book on time for a long time, but then I thought uh, one was best uh, uh, to, to wait till one had, had experienced much of the course of a lifetime uh, to write on time. Uh, anyway, uh, 10 years ago, almost exactly, uh, and I was 66 at that time, and I had a uh, severe uh, bout of Crohn's, which was uh, actually became quite life-threatening. And I was in the hospital here in Las Vegas, up in that ward where they put the people who are uh, in danger of maybe not making it through the night, so the people who have to be watched regularly. And uh, I probably was on morphine or something like that. Uh, and this figure appeared. Uh, and I've always referred to the figure as just a figure uh, just by that term, Jung has uh, refer gives them names like Philemon and 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 so on, uh, and many Jungians, I believe, have had experience like like this. Well, uh, I uh, it, it just appeared. I started asking questions, and uh, he brought me. He gave me a a volume two a uh, two volumes which were my life, and they, they were full of writing. And then the third volume uh, was blank. And he said, uh, well, you have to write that yourself. And uh, later on in the day or uh, later on uh, uh, in the month, perhaps, uh, I thought, well, maybe that means that I'm going to be living another significant space of time and will have significant things to do uh, in that time frame. And after that, the figure began to appear to me in like dreams. Uh, when I was in the hospital, it was like an actual physical presence. It, it, uh, I suppose it was really a kind of dream, but it appeared to be like a physical prep, uh, an apparition perhaps. Uh, and so I began to have these dreams and I would question the figure and, uh, but mostly about philosophical and religious things. It never got into talking about personal things, my relationships with people, uh, uh, world events or anything like this. The figure did not, uh, seem to want to go there, uh, only philosophical, uh, things. And I would wake up in the morning and my head would be full of ideas on these philosophical subjects. Uh, and I started to write them down. And I continued to write them down on, on and off for many years. 
uh, it, it sort of became intensified when I had a heart attack on an airplane uh, several years later. And uh, it was flying over your city of Al Albuquerque, in, in fact. And uh, the uh, cardiolo there was cardiologists on board who forced uh, or persuaded somehow the pilot to turn the thing around, land it in Albuquerque, and uh, uh, probably saved my life. Uh, and I began to think then how Jung uh, changed his uh, interest, shifted his interest when he had his first heart attack. And it was a strange heart attack because I didn't have a heart condition and didn't appear to do any damage, but they had to put in three stints and it could have killed me. But anyway, uh, I continued to do that uh, and uh, became as we got to about two years ago, I began to do it more and review my notes and so on. And I was on a cruise in about 18 months ago and I met uh, someone there and I was telling him about my book and he said, oh, you know, uh, totally unexpectedly, I have just inherited a uh, press and uh, I want to do some interesting things. If you want to put your book together, uh, I uh, would like to consider publishing it. So uh, that, that's what I did. I began to write up all these notes and insights from the dreams of over the years in, into the book, which is now. There, there, there it is. Now, let me ask you this. You mentioned dreams. Were so many of these ideas coming to you in dreams? Yes. Uh, very much so. Uh, all, usually they would be uh, things that would be in my head in the morning when I would wake up and I would write them down. Now, sometimes I would be more stimulated in this area and I would get ideas in the rest of the day. But usually mm -hmm. they would start. Well, Jung himself uh, developed a practice. Uh, I think at one point he called it active imagination, where he would deliberately pursue this dialogue, for example, with the uh, image of Philemon, who became his major, I'll call him a spirit guide, for lack of a better word, or perhaps it was an archetype of some sort. But in any case, uh, did you cultivate some sort of deliberate effort to keep that dialogue going? with the image more when I got to actually writing the book and sometimes I would have arguments with the figure and just tell him to go away. <laughs> and, uh, um, it, it wasn't exactly that. Uh, uh, I don't know that the figure ever appeared when I called him, although I would engage in the active imagination when writing the book, you know, say, put the figure out there in my uh, imagination and conduct a dialogue with him. But this was when things were much further along, not necessarily when the original insights for the book came. It was more like, uh, how does this relate to uh, uh, so something else? Uh, how does what Jung says relate to Whitehead or Shakespeare? That kind of thing. The, the original insights were never that sort of, sort of uh, uh, stuff. Uh, like, you know, well, this is how Jung says it and Shakespeare says it and, and um, Whitehead says it in a different way. It wasn't like that. That was what I put together, but uh, sometimes done through imagine, uh, active imagination dialogue with the figure. The book is somehow a, a joint product of your conscious mind and something coming from a, a deeper level than your conscious mind. Yes, uh, well, I would like to th think that it uh, has that and also the minds of uh, Jung, uh, Alfred North Whitehead. and uh, now, The title Shakespeare. mentions Shakespeare and uh, Jung. It doesn't mention Whitehead. I know, and my publisher said, uh, I said uh, to call it uh, Jung and Shakespeare, the God in time, or maybe the God in time that Jung and Shakespeare. And he said, no, begin with Shakespeare. Shakespeare sells. Uh, Jung sells somewhat, and 
and Whitehead doesn't sell at all. So leave him out of the title. You know, so I think a lot of our viewers will not be familiar with uh, Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead. So uh, perhaps you could uh, summarize why you think uh, his input was important. Some people think he is the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. And uh, I think they, they might be right. Another co uh, contestant would be Wittgenstein. Uh, but... Uh, I know many people have said that Principia Mathematica, which he wrote with uh, uh, Bertrand Russell, is one of the 20 or so great achievements of the human mind. Uh, he was an absolutely brilliant man, uh, but he left mathematics after World War I. Uh, he had a son who was killed in World War I. And this uh, turned his thoughts to the nature of God, justice in the universe, the problem of evil, and things like this. And so uh, that probably is what turned, turned him to philosophy, or at least it certainly colored uh, his uh, interest in and the topics he picked up. And he was very interested in the nature of, of God which made him quite different from people like Bertrand Russell and, and, and Wittgenstein, uh, other English philosophers who didn't want to deal uh, with God at all. Uh, and he was interested in metaphysics. Uh, uh, but he is a very difficult philosopher. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why uh, he's perhaps not well known. Uh, also, he is sort of in a position by himself. He's a process philosopher. And one of the big ideas I develop in the book is that uh, philosophers tend to fall in three categories. Flux philosophers, process, and stasis. And those correspond really with uh, the three uh, tenses of time. Flux is the future. We don't know what it is. Uh, uh, it's unpredictable. Uh, process is corresponds with the present, and stasis corresponds with the, with the past, which is fixed. Uh, now, some of the famous philosophers along those lines are uh, many of the modern philosophers, uh, such as Wittgenstein and Sartre. Uh, are uh, flux philosophers, scientific philosophy, uh, positivism is, is a flux, Marx is in the area of flux. Uh, the great uh, stasis philosopher of all time is Plato, of course. And process is a compromised position in the middle. Now, my, by my analysis, while Jung did not see himself as a metaphysician, and he wanted to be known as, you know, a scientist, uh, a clinical scientist. And he tried to avoid metaphysical pronouncements, uh, but still there's, uh, his works are vast, and the, the, the number of things covered in his 20 volumes are also vast. Uh, and my sense of Jung is that he is essentially a process philosopher. Now, I also believe that that's the position of Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is the great poet of time. He's generally regarded as the greatest of all poets. And his big theme, the, the one theme that interested him more than anything else, and he was interested in a tremendous variety of things, was time. Uh, the nature of time, uh, how, how we deal with it, uh, and uh, uh, he's really the great poet of, of time. Uh, and so uh, I, 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 what I found was that there are not many process philosophers. They tend to lump over in the area of flux or the area, or, or the area of stasis. And that's understandable psychologically because process is a position that is more difficult to hold. If you're looking for certainties, uh, you don't find it 
so so easily as you in stasis that's full of certainties uh, uh, and uh, flux you have the certainty of of uh, no certainties uh, but process is a, a, a more uh, more difficult to understand uh, and so uh, I think he's much Whitehead's a much neglected philosopher uh, I would say that process philosopher uh, philosophy is something uh, we would associate uh, in our time. It's not necessarily, but it's, it's the case. We associate flux uh, with with physics, and we might associate stasis with mathematics, and we could also associate process with biology. Of course, the greatest process in biology is evolution, and uh, but there are processes in the physical universe itself is a process. Formation of galaxies are a process and, 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 and so on. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there's three, you might say, icons for time. The first is the circle. And Plato, the Hindus, basically all of the ancient Indo-European thought, whether it's in India or Greece or uh, somewhere in between, looked at time as a circle. It's kind of an Indo-European thing. Uh, and uh, then you have science, which looks at time uh, as a uh, an ongoing flow, kind of a line. And that uses, there are various philosophers in Greek who had that view. And Lucretius, they... Uh, 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 the nature of things, don't remember the Latin uh, uh, word, which is the actual title, but that's along those those lines. And uh, uh, so you have the line and the circle, but process has its own symbol. And uh, Whitehead specifically identified that it is the spiral. And that's really the symbol of uh the god of uh, Whitehead's universe, I would almost say. And it's, of course, written everywhere. You get a telescope and you look out into the universe and you see spirals everywhere. And not all galaxies are spirals, of course, but, but it's the, the most common form. Uh, and uh, you see it, uh, there's a spiral in, in the DNA, uh, the, the the water goes down the drain and the spiral and so on. It's a fundamental uh, uh, image, and that's the image of time that's consistent with process uh, philosophy. Um, it has an advantage. It's like a circle in that it repeats, but it's also like a line in that it goes somewhere. The, the circle just repeats. It doesn't go anywhere. And like in Nietzsche, he talks about eternal return. And uh, it's not going anywhere. We're just going to come back here in X number of years and do, and we will be doing this interview just exactly the way we're doing it. Uh, uh, and the, the line, of course, goes on and on to new things, but nothing is repeated. Uh, and uh, the idea of process, the spiral, allows for patterns that are repeated and structure things. And yet things are at the same time new uh, as they are in a flux where everything is new and stasis, nothing is new. And there's a combination. I suppose it's worth mentioning, uh, at least parenthetically, that uh, Alfred North Whitehead was uh, an inspiration to my mentor, whom I know you also knew, Arthur M. Young, who considered himself a process philosopher. Yes, I, I do remember that Arthur was a process philosopher, and he had quite quite an elaborate system. Um, and uh, I think I also remember that, that he was an admirer of, uh, of, of of Whitehead. But he was a a very uh, imaginative and uh, in certain ways insightful man. So it doesn't surprise me that he would pick as Whitehead as uh, you know the, the preeminent philosopher that, that he looked to. I assume that he looked at 
Whitehead more than he did to Plato or Wittgenstein or anyone else. Is well, that, I think when he chose to call himself a process philosopher, he was referring very specifically to Whitehead. Yes, yeah. And uh, uh, process philosophy, I had, think, has the potential of getting us out of a lot of uh, uh, dilemmas with, with ideas uh, in philosophy, but also in as you apply these things to practical uh, life. And uh, uh, I think uh, our culture would be healthier if it were more oriented towards uh, process philosophy rather than, as it is now, it's kind of like uh, uh, warring opposites uh, of flux and uh, Stasis, uh, stasis view being associated commonly with, say, the Catholic Church, it's stasis philosophy, and uh, say Marxism would be associated with, with uh, flux. Uh, and if there is a kind of dialectical merging in, in the future, that would be uh, in more of a process point of view which, in my view, would, would be uh, more realistic and, and healthier and less conflict-ridden. Now, you and I now. have had a number of conversations uh, while you were writing the book, and one of the questions uh, that you asked, and I thought it was pretty crucial, is this notion that God and time are uh, very close to each other, maybe even identical, maybe even the case that God is time, although God might be much more than time. But but one of the thoughts that you had is we may never know, uh, you know, with our little human brains, whether or not this is true, but the, the very thought that God might be equivalent to time was a new original idea, and therefore, uh, whether or not it's True, so to speak, true. Uh, it's it's worthy of examination. I, I say at one place in in the book uh, that God and time are two different sides of the same coin, two different faces of the same coin. Uh, and uh, it, it's just two different ways of looking at the same uh, thing. Uh, Time, basically and ultimately, is change. But, uh, well, that's one feature of time. It's just change. Uh, The feature, the book is titled The God in Time. And so what in time is God? Well, it's the structure of time, the patterns, the process that, that is God. Uh, but of course, the process doesn't exist without the things that are in process. Uh, so you, you can't totally separate them, and that's one of a pro- that's kind of a problem in philosophy. Plato and people following wanted to separate. They wanted to stick God outside the universe uh, because the universe isn't perfect. Our lives aren't perfect. We we die. We suffer. There's injustice, disappointment, uh, and God is supposed to be perfect, so he can't really be in the universe. Uh, he's got to be outside the universe. Uh, I reject that idea. Uh, they also thought that God had to be totally masculine. He couldn't have a feminine side because that would be imperfection. Uh, that's also something that. Uh, I would reject, and probably most people would today. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's sort of amazing, really, how uh, locked we remain in some of our basic thinking in our culture in ideas that were formulated upon experiences that occurred uh, and cultural knowledge that occurred. 2,500 years ago, and there are certain new bits of information that 
uh, I think changed things. Like I put the picture of of, of this this gal galaxy uh, on the front of the book, and uh, that galaxy is 9.6 billion light years from here. Uh, it's so far away that uh, and it's traveling so fast that we can never get there. Uh, but uh, it's one of the largest uh, uh, galaxies we've we've discovered, uh, and uh, that's one of we think there are three trillion galaxies, and there are three hundred uh, billion uh, uh, stars in our galaxy. Well, the God, actual God, the God in time has to be the God in that galaxy as well as here and everywhere in between. Uh, and that's just not how people were thinking of God uh, 2,500 years ago or even 500 years ago. I mean, it's only been, uh, I don't, you may remember better than I do, how long ago was it that we discovered that we are in fact in the galaxy and there are other I galaxies Maybe in the 1920s. I sort of think so. In other words, it's an idea that is a bit more I, recent I think than it's, evolution. Uh, the work of Hubble uh, that we came to uh, this understanding. But it's a totally key thing for understanding the, the universe in which uh, we, we reside, rather than this old idea pre Copernicus that the sun is the big light that resolves around us, and we're the center of everything—a uh, laughable idea. Uh, but the, the problem is that our philosophies and religions were formulated, that these basic ideas are crucial to formulating any philosophy and, 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 and religion. Where do you think, what is the universe like? Where did man come from? Uh, what, what is the nature of life? Uh, these sort of things are fundamental. Uh, and, uh, we haven't, adopted new philosophies and religious insights to these. Now, I think thinkers like Jung and uh, Whitehead particularly are not dated in that way. That's one of the reasons I find those two people attractive. They're not dated in that way at all. Uh, and they have done profound thinking on the subject of, of religion, and in Whitehead's case, religion and philosophy, where, or metaphysical philosophy, the big philosophical questions, whereas it may be that Wittgenstein and Sartre aren't dated, but they never had anything other than, or never expressed anything other than a superficial interest in religion. So your concern primarily when you think of God is what you are calling actual God, which is a God, uh, a deity uh, that exists completely independent of human cultural traditions. Uh, it's completely independent of, mutual, of human cultural tra traditions, but that doesn't mean that it's completely alien to them or completely... Uh, or that we are completely capable, incapable of relating to it in, in any way. I think mysticism is an, essentially an attempt to relate to this God, to actual God, although in most cultures they, they confuse actual God with their uh, cultural Godhead. Uh, but uh, the cultural Godhead is a kind of God, I think, in that one way I've looked at it as as a collective autonomous complex. Uh, you know what an autonomous complex is within the psyche, and it can be like even a separate personality, or uh, uh, certainly it's a complex of archetypes and psychic energies uh, that have a, a either an, not necessarily total independence, but have their own kind of territory, like Jupiter has its own gravitational field within the solar system, and, and, and so, so do we. Well, uh, uh, these uh, cultural godheads, that's the 
uh, term the the Jung likes to use for them as, as Godhead, they can be tremendously influential. Now, I've not put a lot of thought into anything other than the Western Godhead, but this is one of the things that I do discuss in the book extensively, which is how the Western God had, has influenced our culture, that the very archetypes that are active in this Godhead, and by the Western Godhead, I mean, it begins with Abraham and uh, the, the Old Testament, and the, this figure moves through uh, there was really, it was kind of a coalescing of uh, gods or ideas, mythic fragments in the Hebraic culture that coalesced into, into Yahweh. Uh, and that developed uh, from uh, Moses, it was there before, but from Mo Moses on, it went through an evolution. And Originally, it was this nasty, tyrannical, excitable, irrational uh, deity that Jung discusses in answer to Job. Uh, and Jung reacted very strongly against that. And he said that, well, God uh, realizes, because of his abuse of Job, that he uh, causes suffering for man. And so... He comes again as Christ, not to uh, redeem man from his sins, but to understand man, uh, understand his creation better. And so Jung throughout his life wrestled with this idea, well, what is God really like? One of his points was that God has to be a quaternity because he saw the self as four part. And, you know, there's the thinking, feeling intuition and sensation functions, there's all sorts of fours. That carries over into the Orient and uh, other cultures where uh, this four is this figure of, of whole, wholeness and unity uh, in, the, it's in the Mandalas. Uh, and he said, uh, Trinity is unstable. Uh, you need a fourth. So he was looking for a fourth and, and his candidates were Satan and Mary. But Back to uh, the influence. Uh, the God, the Christian God, had, as I see it, two preeminent qualities, two words: love and truth. And uh, truth is a little bit less clear in the New Testament than love, but it's still very much there. And there was a kind of marriage between the Judaic Christian tradition and Hellenism. And of course, the Greeks emphasized truth. But as you got into Christianity, you, you had these two big ideas, God as truth and God as love. And so uh, by understanding the truth, uh, what the world really is like, and so on, you were understanding God, and that was something that furthered science. And if you look at the sciences, not today, but of a few hundred years ago, Newton, for example, they saw their pursuit of scientific understanding as a religious pursuit, uh, not in opposition to Christianity at all, but a furtherance of it. Uh, and this is of tremendous importance. Uh, that uh, this isn't the case in Islam, because uh, God was bound by truth and God was bound by love. It may be all powerful, but He couldn't uh, alter uh, the past. Uh, he couldn't change the laws of the universe once He established them. And he couldn't do anything that was evil or unloving. Uh, in Islam, he can do all those things. He's all, he's all powerful. And if you put any limitations on him, that's blasphemy. Because the essence of this God, their God, is not truth and love. It is power. Uh, and so uh, 
but these basic concepts of the God and the nature of God were something that in my view, and I'm not alone in, in this uh, by any means, this furthered the development of science and technology. Technology because uh, it was good to make people's lives easier and better. It was a loving thing to do. And so technology is good. It wasn't, technology wasn't necessarily good for the Romans. Uh, we had uh, Tiberius uh, outlawed some new type of glass that, that did not break easily because he thought it would put the glass makers out of work. And uh, uh, th things like this, they didn't have the idea of progress at all. Uh, with, with, with the Romans, but this, uh, it wasn't there initially, but it began to develop in the Middle Ages. And it came out, the Middle Ages, of course, were deeply Christian, uh, and technology did not start at the Renaissance. It started in the Middle Ages. It was uh, going uh, as a force, uh, several centuries before Leonardo and uh, Shakespeare and uh, the big figures of the Renaissance. I'm saying that the Godhead, uh, that the West wor worships and the Islamic God and so on, they're realities. They're just, but they're a different reality from uh, actual God, but people don't make that distinction. I mean, I think what I hear you saying is is that these cultural godheads are are like autonomous uh, archetypes within the collective uh, consciousness of a uh, civilization. Exactly. That's exactly what they are. Now, they affect people differently. Uh, and they're, they're complexes, meaning it's more than one part to, to it. Like uh, if the quaternity, it has four parts. And uh, uh, people will be affected quite differently uh, by it. Uh, some will, for example, you, someone like Mother Teresa or St. Francis, they're very much, you might even say, possessed by uh, the Jesus archetype as the, lover, the loving uh, being, uh, uh, healing, serving other people, and so on. Uh, other people, uh, they have different approaches uh, that come from different aspects of, uh, of the Godhead. But the Godhead is like this uh, uber power that has this great influence over the civilization. Uh, I don't think it's really waning. I think it's just changing. Uh, I do remember... I. I a couple of years ago, I visited the island of Delos uh, in Greece, and Delos was said to be the birthplace of Apollo. And it was this tremendously important place. And you can go there, and the island is just almost like a sandbar. It's maybe a square mile. It's tiny, but 20,000 people lived there, and it was like a powerful center, like Jerusalem. Uh, and now there's nothing there but a bunch of archaeologists and tourists who visit every day because that god and the Greek pantheon, essentially, have all basically died. They, they don't, don't have any power in the collective psyche of, uh, of, of the, that civilization the way they did in uh, Hellenic times. And that could happen with uh, the Christian god or... Uh, uh, the Islamic God, too, uh, they're sustained by the psychic energy of uh, the people uh, in the civilization or the culture, whereas actual God is not sustained by that. And, and at, you enumerate certain properties of actual God that would distinguish it from a civilizational God, uh, and I think foremost amongst those is the creation of meaning. Uh, yes, uh, and th they're connected with time, uh, and time is 
irreversible and another thing that's unique about time is uniqueness it itself everything in our universe is unique because uh, even if two things seem to be exactly the same they're not in the same place uh, and part of what they are is where they are uh, and both in time and in uh, uh, space. Uh, so everything is unique, even if two atoms, you may think they're the same, but they're, they're, they're not. And have one atom here, well, one atom here, another one here, gravity, gravity and all sorts of forces are acting on those in different ways. And that's part of what they are. So everything is, is unique. Uh, and since time is irreversible, uh, nothing lasts, but uh, this gives actual meaning and value to things, their, their uniqueness and uh, their uh, fleeting ephemeral quality. Now that may not be, that's the fundamental of value and meaning. It may not be meaningful to, in itself, to individuals, but it's what makes meaning possible for individuals and gives them the opportunity to create things that are emotionally meaningful for themselves. It's a difficult concept, uh, I, I, I know, but w without these, this uniqueness and this uh, irreversibility, without time, there couldn't be any meaning or value. There couldn't be any consciousness either. There would be uh, nothing. Or everything all at once. Well, everything all at once <laughs> is what we have now. <laughs> now, why do you say that? Because uh, because of time, we don't have everything all at once. Well, that's true. We, 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 we don't. We have everything in the moment all at once, but uh, uh, there's the past and, and, and the future. Uh, infinite complexity going on. But what you're way. pointing out is is that time is is what creates meaning because of the fact that events unfold in a sequence and because of the uniqueness of each event. Yes. And, and because you can't do things over. Therefore, I think you're arguing that uh, time has qualities that are traditionally ascribed to uh, the ultimate deity, the source of meaning. Well, yes, time has qualities just as space has qualities. And you know, in space, there are gravitational fields and electrical, electromagnetic fields. Now, one of the ideas in my book is that there are fields in time, time fields, time frames. And uh, I borrowed a word from the science fiction uh, TV program, Doctor Who, TARDIS, to refer to some of these time fields. And it's like, uh, well, again, the image of the solar system. You have the sun, but then Jupiter has its own uh, gravitational and, and other fields. And, so, and each of those moons does, and, and so on. And they interact in different ways. Well, uh, within time, I see, and I think Jung saw, uh, and this was in his concept of synchronicity, uh, the archetypes set up fields in time. Uh, single archetypes uh, become very powerfully activated, and they influence everything like a gravitational field around them or complexes of archetypes, uh, uh, too. Uh, uh, and so uh, the it's not like it's just... No, Jung ascribed, as I recall, uh, the Second World War to the rising of the Wotan archetype in the consciousness of the German population. Yes, and you can interpret a large number of historic events in terms of rising archetype. There was a rising archetype in the United States, for example, that uh, made us look at slavery as immoral. 
and drove the uh, the uh, abolitionist movement and so on. It was not just in the United States. It was uh, processing through the centuries. But uh, uh, there was an archetypal complex uh, there, which we would see as ideas, but uh, at the same time, they, they were archetypes. Like, we know the space is not uniform. And we tend to assume that time is. But it isn't. Now, that doesn't mean things can go back in time, but that means that there are these fields and these variations and areas of time have certain qualities that distinguish them from another area of time. So you're suggesting, I suppose, that as as time moves forward, different facets of the deity uh, of, of actual God are revealing themselves. I would say different facets of the civilizational Godhead are revealing themselves and unfolding. And with actual God, we are discovering. Uh, I'm not so sure that I'd go so far as to say actual God is revealing itself to us, that we are discovering. Whereas uh, the civilizational Godhead is more, as you know, this autonomous complex, it's more like a personality that, that, uh, has intentions. Those intentions are driven by archetypes, of course, and uh, if they're choices made, they're made by the collective coming together in these difficult to understand ways that, you know, how uh, how does a group of people make a decision? Well, it's not the same way as one, as a single person makes a decision. Um, Well, maybe it is, according to you, because he, he you would see that your decisions would be the interplay of your anima and your shadow and, and your persona and, and all sorts of forces within your psyche. And if you have a group of people, the Supreme Court, there's, for example, there's an interplay of these nine personalities. Uh, and in the uh, Godhead, there's an interplay of the various archetypes that oppose the, the Godhead. But that's not true so far as we know or I know of actual God. I don't see there as an interplay. But you are suggesting that actual God is discoverable. Yes. Uh, But not that there is one uh, playbook or formula for discovering it. That we, we are discovering it through the human experience. Uh, and particularly in the West, where because we have science and uh, uh, we have arts and philosophies that are more complicated and uh, uh, develop and more interactive with the general world than in other civilizations, uh, uh, we're on a quest for discovering uh, the, this actual God. And at the same time, uh, to a certain extent, this quest is guided by the civilizational Godhead. So those who want to believe uh, that uh, our own religious tradition has a certain validity that is, uh, uh, they're they're not being baseless. Jung said, however, that you were best to pursue these big questions in terms of your own tradition. In other words, he didn't think it was a good idea for Westerners to go to China or India and try to discover, to learn those traditions and try to discover them. They should do it in terms of their own. Similarly, that the Indians and the Chinese needed to do it in terms of their own. So I think that that's, that's correct, that we're not, I wouldn't be saying that these other civilizations are, uh, that they're false gods or that they're invalid. They have a different way of pursuing things than, than we do. And uh, being born and growing up in this civilization, uh, it's the one I understand. It's the one that's valid for me to pursue, but not necessarily for somebody in uh, uh, 
Well, let me ask you this question, Jim. You refer to the various chapters in your book as meditations. It's really, as you describe it, a collection of meditations. How are you using the term meditation? That's a good question and a a difficult one. Um, For one thing, I was thinking in terms of Marcus Aurelius and sometimes in terms of Montaigne. but there are, I would say, a flow of thought on a particular subject or set of subjects. Uh, and meditation, I suppose, meaning that uh, it was like the creation was like a meditation because I would get maybe start out with a seminal idea and then continue adding to it sometimes over over the years. Uh, And as I would see, you know, well, this is what I'm dealing with here in this meditation, and Whitehead and Jung have some things to say, or Shakespeare or somebody else that is relevant, so I I bring them in. Well, James P. Driscoll, this has been a very interesting excursion into what I think of as, as an important book, probably a, a, a seminal book because it does contain uh, some very original thinking about uh, the relationship between God and time. I encourage our viewers to take a look at it, and uh, I thank you for being with me. Well, thank you, Jeffrey, again, for the opportunity to bring some of these ideas, and I I certainly hope your your assessment is correct, your generous assessment. 